Bibles, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we will conclude chapter 1 uh, today, Lord willing. And if you have been studying through chapters 1 and 2 and 3, if you've been reading along and uh, maybe trying to do some memorization in here, you, you know that really from verse 18 on down through the end of the chapter, it, it seems to just get darker and darker. And uh, it's kind of an exposition of the sinfulness of humanity. And so um, I will endeavor for today's sermon not to be dark because there is light coming. There is the best light ever coming. But uh, the darkness of particularly the end here of chapter 1 is a good introduction uh, to that light that is coming. But we must understand, we must understand the condition that man finds himself in. Otherwise, the gospel doesn't make the same sense. It doesn't have the same beauty. It doesn't shine like it really should. And so, Paul spends chapters exposing the sinfulness of humanity. And so, with that kind of introduction in mind, we're in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read for us, beginning in verse 28 through the end of the chapter. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, those are sobering words. Sobering and scary and revealing. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would help us to see truly what is here. We ask that your word would be lifted up, that you would be lifted up, and that truths about ourselves or fallen mankind though painful, would help us to understand better the gospel of your Son. So as we look at this paragraph today, I pray that you would bless our time. And I pray that we uh, would set aside distraction. I pray that you would keep us from unnecessary distraction. pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit from your Word, Pray that we would be ready to hear from you what you have for us today. Father, help us to take away the message that you have, even here in this passage this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I like to read, and before we went to Russia, I went on a binge and read nearly everything Russian or Soviet that I could find, in English, of course. 
And uh, so I read all kinds of novels and War and Peace and Anna Karenina and many, many, many others that you've never heard of, obscure things. Some of them were uh, Soviet propaganda pieces, and those are extra difficult to read for sure. But one of them that I really enjoyed was a book called Crime and Punishment. And uh, I didn't choose it because of the title, <laughs> but uh, it's written by uh, Dostoevsky, and he was a very philosophically minded man who uh, wrote a lot about Christianity. He, he understood humanity very well, and his, uh, uh, his writings are, are many, and they're usually dark because he understands humanity so well, and he can paint the picture well enough that you kind of go on the dark journey with him. Well, crime and punishment is no different. The main character is this guy whose last name is Raskolnikov, and he really is kind of the rascal of the story, and so the name fits. And uh, I won't spoil it for you. I know, I know you were just going to go get it today, right, and then start it this evening. I would recommend that. But um, so this guy, Raskolnikov, he's, he's very poor. He's, uh, uh, he used to be a student, lives alone in St. Petersburg in, uh, I believe it's the 19th century. And uh, he, he's desperate. He's very intelligent, but he kind of talks to himself, doesn't really have, he has some friends, but not many. He's extremely poor. He's usually hungry. And he comes up with this plan that there's, there's this particular person who is wealthy and much hated in society. And so he decides, hey, I can, I can accomplish two things in one shot. I can both rid society of this evil, this, this ill, this person that everyone would rather have gone, and I could take that money and make it my own, and then I wouldn't be starving, right? So he concocts this plan, and when he goes to carry out the deed and murder this person and, and steal all that he can, lo and behold, the person's not alone, and now he's got to kill a second person. And so he does. And he goes home sort of in a half uh, delirium and passes out and whatever, and the rest of the story, that takes place pretty early on in the book, and the rest of the story is about his downward spiral as he wrestles with the guilt of what he's done, as he becomes more and more paranoid and fearful that he's going to get caught. And so he has to talk to the police frequently for another reason, and he's always completely scared they're going to figure it out. And so as you read this story, Dostoevsky is uh, such a, a brilliant storyteller that he takes you with him into or near insanity. And so as you're reading it, you kind of you kind of get like this, you know, you're, you're kind of suspicious and you kind of feel like he does because he's that good of a storyteller. It's that kind of a downward spiral that's fun to read and put down <laughs> and move away from and, and, and reflect upon, but that's kind of what's going on here in chapter one. That Paul has revealed to us true and, and, and deep and meaningful things about humanity and they, he keeps uncovering layer after layer after layer, and you end up in this downward spiral, much like the one that poor Raskolnikov went through. And so, uh, he, he ends up just a, just a wretch. The story is worth reading. I haven't really sold it very well today, but, but I do encourage you to read it because it's so interesting in his reflection on human nature. That's what I think is the, the best thing that Dostoevsky has to offer. Well, in today's passage, we come to our third giving over, right? We, we talked about in previous weeks, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
right? So you see God handing them over, him giving them up, him turning them over uh, in their sin. And it results in even worse, even more degrading sin. Well, today we come to the third one of those, and it's no longer talking about the lusts of their hearts. It's no longer, longer talking about dishonorable passions. He's instead talking about their very mind becomes depraved. And so we begin by looking at, in verse 28, the root of depravity, the root of depravity, which is rejection. All right, let's read 28 together. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's because they had this knowledge of God that Paul has talked about in previous sections where he said, all of creation has made known certain things about him to everybody who has access to creation. Everybody knows it, and though they knew it, they abandoned it. They turned away from it. They didn't want it. They rejected it. They considered it worthless to retain knowledge about God. Why, why would I do such a thing? That's silly. And so they considered it worthless. Um, and so we see that they, they consider that to be unfit knowledge. The knowledge of God itself, they consider in their own minds to be unfit knowledge. They don't need to know it. Life's better if you don't know it. Life's better if you set it aside. That's what they count. And so they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Some things are just vital to know and to keep in mind, right? So when we finally did move to Russia, we had, we had actually lived there for a year before, back in the 90s. And while we were there, we were there not to learn language. We were only going to be there for one year. It was just, just Steph and I. We didn't have any of the kids yet. We were just going to be there one year doing ministry. So they said, don't worry about learning the language. Pick up what you can. But you're here to do ministry. Just use interpreters and do ministry. And okay, well, that made sense. And so we did that. Well, I like to learn. And so I started tinkering with the language. And people who had uh, gone before me, people who had been there for maybe a year or two in our position, said, you know what? Go ahead and do that. Learn how to get around. But don't worry about the cases. The case system will just throw you for a loop. You don't have time to learn it. And so just do the best you can without it. Well, a case system, English doesn't really use a case system in the same way, but, but any, uh, not any language, but Russian certainly uses a case system. Greek uses a case system. German. There are lots of other languages that use a case system that is essential for how to communicate. We talked in Sunday school today about how in Greek the word order is, is, doesn't carry the same meaning that it does in English. If I start flipping around uh, nouns in a sentence in English, all of a sudden you have what used to be the subject now being the object, and what used to be the object being the subject, and I lost half of you right there. <laughs> it doesn't communicate the same thing in English if you start tinkering with the word order. Well, in Greek and in, in, uh, in, uh, in, Greek and in German and in Russian particularly, you can do that, and Russians like to do that because they have a case system that, that takes the place of word order. And so... I, they said, ignore the case system. And I said, I'm going to ignore the case system. And I'm going to do the best I can. And so I did the best I could. And uh, well, come to find out, when we finally did move there, and I finally did begin to learn the language systematically, the case system is crucial. It's vitally important in order to be able to understand how to communicate in Russian. You have to know this information. 
And so we learned the case system right off the bat because you have to have it. And so here I had fumbled around for an entire year trying to speak Russian, trying to speak a language without having step one under my belt, the case system. That was essential information. That was vital information, and I couldn't move forward without it, and yet I considered it to be unfit. Who needs it? And that's kind of what has gone on here with the unbeliever and the existence of God. Although they knew God's righteous decree, although they knew about God, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, they knew about that knowledge, but they didn't want to retain it. And so they considered that knowledge unfit. And so God gave them an unfit mind. Since they considered knowledge of Him to be unfit, He gave them an unfit mind. We see since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to a depraved mind, to an unfit, unworthy mind, to a reprobate mind. One scholar has defined the biblical concept of the mind as the organ of moral reasoning and willing. That's what's at stake. That's what gets corrupted. The organ of moral reasoning and willing. It's not about doing math. It's not the capacity to learn. It's about understanding morally and acting morally. This is what the Proverbs have in mind when, when uh, Proverbs tells us over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's the starting place to know how to apply any information. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so Paul's going to reflect again on the mind and the importance of the mind and, and the corrupt mind and the mindset on the spirit and those things in chapter 8 when he's going to say this, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that's the result of God giving them over to an unfit mind. And of course, what's the result? He gave them a debased mind, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. An unfit mind is followed by unfit actions. And that's exactly the result here. The unfit, debased mind produces behavior that is also unfit and debased. See, our, the progression is very clear here. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain knowledge of God in their thinking, so God give, gave them over to a mind, a way of thinking and reasoning and acting that was also worthless. The result is that they do things they ought not to do. They do things which are worthless. And that's the progression. So what's the application for us? Well, we need to keep in mind that our sinful actions stem from faulty beliefs that we hold about God. They stem from our minds. And the corrective for us is to study and learn what is true about God and then build our lives upon those things. Take what we know, improve what we know, 
and build our lives upon those things. And so you and I need to do that. And that's part of what we're doing here today, and that's part of what we do in connect groups when we're together or when we encourage one another. We are helping one another to build our lives upon the truth of God. So what's the, that's the root of depravity. That's the, the rejection that, that results in this depravity that's going to follow. What's the fruit of depravity? Well, the fruit of depravity is unrighteousness in a word, unrighteousness. And, and we're going to see depravity in many forms in these next couple of verses, many forms. We, we've already seen in our chapter that uh, how sinful man prefers to worship creation rather than the creator that they clearly know exists. They prefer idolatry. We've already seen how depravity leads to gross sexual perversions of God's created purposes for sexuality. We've already seen some specifics, but in this paragraph, Paul makes it painfully clear that though we may not be openly idolatrous, though we may not be involved in sexual sin, yet there is plenty of other evidence of damnable sinfulness to go around. It takes many, many forms. So we continue on in chapter 1, verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. By the way, there's a figure of speech that's at use here. It's called asundeten, and you don't care about that, but what it means is not tied together, meaning there aren't a bunch of ands in there. It's when a list, a long list happens, the intent of the list is for us to get the broad picture. The intent of the list is not to focus on each one, tear each one apart, and see all the specifics and the ins and outs of, step, of this one and then of this one. There are 21 of them in here, by the way. So if I did that, you know, we'd be here, we'd have to have intermission and lunchtime and come back. I'm not going to do that because the intent is to, to convey the totality, the breadth, and, and how extensive this influence of unrighteousness is. And when we look at this list, we don't have to squint very hard to see uh, elements of ourselves in there. And so we see that depravity comes in many, many forms. We see, secondly, looking at this same list, that depravity is in society. It's in relationships. As you think through the list of what I just read, the vast majority have to do with how we relate to one another. They have to do with how we think about people, how we talk to people, how we treat people. Most of these are social by the way, and scholars call this a vice list, and there are many vice lists in the New Testament, but this is the longest one. This one's the most extensive. And it's interesting to think about how much of it has to do with social relationships, how we relate to one another. For example, he says at the end of 29, they are gossips, slanderers. And he continues. Well, we know what gossiping is, and we know probably have an idea of what slandering is. And of course, those two things, uh, 
have a lot in common. They're, they're both people who go around to destroy, the uh, to destroy the reputation of others by misrepresenting them, right? That's, that's what gossip does. It destroys someone else's reputation. And it's by misrepresenting, usually motives, maybe the facts of the case or whatever, but that, that's, what, that's what's going on. But there's a difference. There's, of course, commonality between a gossip and uh, one who is a slanderer. You know, they both go around to destroy reputations by misrepresentation, but there's also distinction between the two. A gossip is a person who usually goes and whispers this to someone. They talk to somebody on the side. And they talk about it so that it's not heard broadly. Perhaps they speak to a small group about it, but it, you know, this, this doesn't have to you know, go past us kind of idea. It's a whispering that goes on. The slanderer doesn't really care who hears. The slanderer is willing to shout from the roof, rooftops misrepresentations about this person or about this situation. In the, in the New Testament way of thinking, in the biblical way of thinking, the gossip is the more dangerous of the two. Not that slanderers, the slanderer is fine and doing just fine, but gossip is so dangerous because you can't fight against it, right? And that's why we have such uh, strong language about it in the New Testament and indeed in the Old Testament. We read in Proverbs 16, 28, a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Whisperer, gossip. Proverbs 18, 8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. They, they sink deep down before they blow up and destroy that relationship or that reputation. Proverbs 26, 20 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. That's why we have such strong language in the Bible for us not to be gossips, for us to be careful uh, who we talk to about what and what we share with other people and what our own mo motives are and the way we go about it. We always need to be willing to talk to the person that we're talking about in the same way that we're, that we're sharing with someone else. We need to be careful of prayer requests. Oftentimes, prayer request is just covert way of saying, I'm about to gossip, but I don't want to feel guilty about it, so this is a prayer request. And then lay it out there, right? Let's be careful. We need to be careful of the reputation of others. We need to be careful of others' hearts. So what about malice? Uh, maybe we don't know what malice is. Malice is a disposition for producing mischief. Someone who likes to cause trouble. And sometimes it's cute, and sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's joking, and sometimes it's malicious. Or what about insolent? You can see so far these relate to how we talk to other people, relate to people, right? What about insolent? What is, what is insolence? Well, a person who is insolent is a person who thinks he is so superior to others that his treatment of them is irrelevant. It doesn't really matter what they think because the insolent man is so superior to others that they'll have to get over it or they won't, but I know better. It can be violent or it can be just in conversation, but it doesn't really matter because I'm better than you and so I'm just going to say and do what I want, and you don't really count. That's insolence. Did you see in there, I, I, like, to, I like to tease the youth about this sometime, sometimes. What, what do you see there in, in uh, verse 30, right at the end of verse 30? Right in the middle of all of this list of difficult, difficult, hard, painful, 
sinful, dark things. Disobedient to parents. is right smack in the middle of it. Disobedience to parents is, uh, is a big deal. We're not just talking about the training process that every parent and every child goes through. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of disobedience that's referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 21 where, where a family, the, the parents have a, have a child who is so rebellious after they have disciplined, they have taught, they have trained, they have punished and done whatever they can on their part, yet this child is incorrigible. Child meaning someone still in their home because it's referred to, this person is referred to as a glutton and a drunkard. Right, so probably talking about at least maybe a teenager, uh, you know, maybe someone older who still lives in the home who just is incorrigible. And in the Old Testament, the penalty for that was death. Now, there's no evidence anywhere in Scripture that anyone ever did that. We don't see someone carrying that out. We don't see someone doing that. But can you imagine as the parent, how hard would you try to parents your children to, towards obedience? How, how much would you, would you study them and would you work and would you pray and would you agonize and would you do absolutely everything in your power to bring your child around? Ultimately, of course, the disobedience of the child ultimately rests with the child. But it's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought, particularly in our day and age where uh, parents can be sued by their children for anything, the, the, the child can sue for independence. There's another name for it that I don't know what it is, but they can, they can sue for their own independence from their parents and things like that. Where the Bible says obedience to parents is so crucial because the child is being taught how to relate to all human authority, and in fact, the child is being taught how to relate to God by the way the child relates to parents. And so parents, I, I feel this. I feel this. I want my children to be obedient and children, you should, you should feel this. You should sense the weight of this that right smack in the middle of, of murder and slander and hatred of God and all these things, you have obedience to parents. This is important. Training starts in the home. Learning how to walk with God starts with learning how to walk with your parents. And so we have this depravity expressed generally in social relationships. There are exceptions, but generally it's how we relate to one another. Which brings us uh, to point C there, depravity and the second great commandment. Why, are so much, uh, wh why is so much evidence here in the social realm in how we treat one another? I think it has to do with the second great commandment. Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. There's a very, very close connection between that first commandment and that second commandment. Our chapter earlier has talked largely about how they've abandoned the first great commandment. Love the Lord their God. On the contrary, though they know He exists, they set Him aside 
They rebel against him. They want to create their own reality. They want to worship creation instead of the creator. They want to flip sexuality around. They want to flip everything around and make it the opposite of what God intended. Love the Lord their God. They have hated the Lord their God. And how does it express itself? In the way they treat other people. The way fallen humanity treats one another. Our vice list today is a, is a veritable study of how to break the second great commandment. The area that should be among man's greatest concerns, how he treats others, becomes the area that most clearly and painfully displays his lack of concern for God's law. So how does this apply to us? Our sin often shows itself first or most clearly in our bad treatment of others. Whether it's how we think about them, talk about them, talk to them or treat them, sins in those areas should be warning flags that we have a deeper sin problem at work in our heart. It's evidence. It's a flag of what's going on in our relationship with God. So we looked at the root of depravity, which is their rejection. We looked at the fruit of depravity, which is unrighteousness. And what's the pinnacle of depravity? <clears throat> Promotion. Promotion. Look at verse 32. <clears throat> Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So first of all, they start off knowing righteousness. Knowing righteousness. The unbeliever's problem is not ignorance. It's rebellion. Rebellion against his creator. The unbeliever has some knowledge of what God expects, and he even has some understanding, some idea of what the penalty for going against God's expectation is. Biblically speaking, the problem is that he doesn't want to submit to God. He doesn't want to submit to God's expectations. So he knows righteousness, but, but what's his response? Pursuing unrighteousness. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, so they walk in them, they practice them, they do them, they go after them, they, they ignore what they know to be right. They try to ignore what the consequences will be. And sinful man continues to walk in various forms of unrighteousness and depravity, though he knows better, though he knows the other. And what's the culmination What's the, I really should say the low point, promoting unrighteousness. Promoting, knowing, they, they started knowing righteousness, but they pursue unrighteousness, and now they are promoting unrighteousness. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He doesn't stop at doing those things himself. You can see how this is, this is a, a greater and deeper and darker descent. It's bad enough to reject God, reject God's expectations, ignore what the penalties are going to be, and run the other direction into unrighteousness. 
That's bad enough, and that's what we've talked about to this point, and it, it shows itself, it reveals itself in the social ills we see around us, but it keeps going deeper. Not being satisfied with doing those things, they begin to promote those things in other people. They begin to encourage others to do the same thing. They begin to cheer people on who are already doing those things and recruiting others to participate with them. I was going to ask uh, Richard earlier if he would rather catch a car thief by himself or catch the ringleader of, of car thieves. I'm guessing he would like to catch the ringleader because the ringleader is, in a sense, worse. He's running the show. He's encouraging. He's coordinating. He's, he's causing this to go beyond just himself. The lone car thief is bad enough, but the ringleader has pushed it even farther. We have to be careful how we influence other people. We have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, teaching one of our daughters how to drive right now, so I'd appreciate prayer. <laughs> Working on that 50 hours, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. And she's doing great. I'm not, I'm not usually scared. <clears throat> <laughs> But if you've ever taught someone else how to drive or shoot a gun or something dangerous, you know the, the, the stakes just got a little higher. I've been driving a long time, and I do a lot of things uh, unconsciously I don't even think about. And probably I do a lot of things I shouldn't do. Do I roll through stop signs? Do I always use my blinker? Do I speed? Do I yield when I should? Those kinds of things, right? We, we, we kind of fudge that sometimes, just a little bit, right? Not anyone here, Richard. No one here would do that. <laughs> I'm speaking hypothetically. But when you're teaching someone else to drive, you're passing on your habits to that person. So all of a sudden, I, I start thinking about, wait, I'm supposed to stop at the plane of the stop sign and not farther up forward where I want to, right? I'm supposed to slow down at this rate. I'm supposed to use my blinker. I'm supposed to do those things because I'm teaching someone else. I'm influencing someone else. I'm going to produce another driver who will drive a lot like I do, who will drive a lot like I taught her to drive. So it makes you a little, you know, makes you think about driving a little bit more, right? Well, this is, this is the case in life. So here you have people living their lives like they want to, seeking those things, pursuing those things that they want, that are in direct rebellion against God and they don't really care. And now they have recruits influencing other people to do the same. Come on, try this with me. Let's do this. Ah, that's stodgy, old-fashioned, the preacher and the Bible and the, those Christians. Let's do this thing. And you see that in our society today. It's not enough for people to walk in open rebellion against God. It's not enough for people to practice what they want. They must recruit. They must recruit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And so I feel that weight as a Christian. What am I encouraging other people to do? What am I encouraging my daughter to do when she drives, when she gets behind the wheel? Does she wear a seatbelt? What do I encourage her to do? What, what am I encouraging other Christians to do 
What things, what, what acts of tiny little rebellion in my own life, in my own heart that, that I can kind of keep hidden or that, that everybody thinks are, are okay anyway, which of those am I promoting in other people? That's what that thought causes me to wonder. For application for us, there are two things for us to be wary of in this verse. First is our own behavior in obeying God. We dare not set aside what we know to be God's righteous commands to us. Psalm 1 uh, pushes it a little bit further. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. I want to be one of those influencing towards the Lord. Secondly, we need to be very careful what we encourage other people to do in our own Christian lives. But there's, a, there's another application here. Because for some of us, we are sitting here observing something from the outside. When we read this vice list, yeah, we see tendencies of those same things in us. Perhaps we have done some of those same things. Chances are very good. But this doesn't describe us. This passage is about fallen humanity apart from Christ. This passage is about the unbeliever. And of course, the unbeliever doesn't do every one of these things openly. But this is a description of those who have not seen fit to acknowledge God. And that's our third application. We must see fit. I'm talking to those who don't know Christ. You must see fit to acknowledge God. His call to you today is to, to repent from that whole attitude, to, to turn from that understanding of reality, that way of acting, and turn to Christ in submission to Him. That's what He calls you to do. That's what He calls you to do even today. And so you may be right smack in the middle of this paragraph. That may be you, and they may be overt, or they may be covert, your expressions of these sins, but you know deep down that you have not seen fit to acknowledge God. And so God has given you up to a debased mind. The call for you today is to repent from that, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him. There's another vice list that, uh, the, as I said, there are many in the New Testament. Paul uh, gives us another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and the, the, the vice list is slightly different. But what, what is powerful to me is what I want you to hear in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the call for you today, unbeliever. To trust in Christ and what you have been rejecting to this point turn and accept. Trust Him. And these things that are accounted against you, these, these things for which you are unbelievably guilty before God, deserving of His full wrath aimed at you, you trust in Christ and you will see those things have been placed on Jesus and punished in Him. And you will be forgiven 
you will be one of those that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so today as we wrap up this difficult passage in Romans chapter 1 that does not paint a flattering picture of mankind, this is what I want you to think about. For you who don't know Christ, this is where you stand right in the end of chapter 1. Somewhere in there, identifying somewhere in yourself those things. But there is forgiveness in Christ. And the call for you today is to trust in Him, to turn from that entire rejecting way of thinking and trust in Christ for the salvation of your sins. And you will find Him to be a perfect Savior, pleading your case even now. You will find that His sacrifice on your behalf, His sacrifice before the Father, bearing your guilt, bearing the wrath of God, will give you freedom and life in Christ. And so that's my prayer for you today, that you would do exactly that. There's going to be a family up front to pray with you once I'm done here. If you have a prayer request, if you have a need, if you want to know more about what it means to have life in Christ instead of this death that we've read about, ask them or ask me. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you speak truly to us about our condition. I thank you for this passage that reveals sinful, fallen humanity. And I see vestiges of this in myself. I see I have sinful tendencies in these areas, but you have redeemed me in Christ. That used to be me entirely. That used to describe me I used to be the, the, a child of wrath. But in Christ, I have been redeemed. And Father, I thank you for that. I rejoice and I praise you for that and I praise you for the redemption that you have accomplished on behalf of uh, all those in this room who have been redeemed. And for those who don't yet know you, I pray that they would come to know you even now. I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would find forgiveness in Christ, that they would be set free, that that, that would no longer be them, that they could say, such, such was I, but I was washed. I was sanctified. I was justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for speaking truth to us, though it's a hard truth. I ask for your blessing for us as we think about this this coming weekend, as we think about those around us who don't know you, as we read the news, as we, as we uh, watch what's going on in our world, that we would think in these terms and that we would be willing to be those who bear the gospel to those people who deserve God's wrath even now like we did. So, Father, I pray that you would do that. For those, those who don't yet know you, I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. Thank you for your spirit speaking to us. Thank you for your word, for the opportunity that we have today. We praise your name and we worship you and we ask for your blessing on us as we go. Pray in Jesus' name. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.